Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Uh, hi, Mara. My name is uh, Benjamin uh, Hjorison. I'm uh, currently a postdoc at uh, Harvard University at the lab of uh, Katja Bertoldi. And I'm also um, highly linked uh, to KU Leuven in Belgium, the university, the University of Leuven, that is, um, where I'm still supervising four PhD students, all in the field of soft robotics. And that's in a research group of Professor Dominique Reinhardt. Um, and we have collaborated ourselves there in uh, the soft robotics group. And if you're more interested on that, you can just visit softroboticsgroup.com. Thanks so much, Benjamin, for joining us uh, in the podcast. So first of all, I would like to go when you were a child. Do you have any memories you were interested in science or technology when you were a kid? Yeah, I was always um, highly interested in Legos. And I think that is very stereotypical of everybody who is in like the, the science and technology. Uh, thing and um, I, I think it, it all started there the snap I think uh, playing with Legos trying to to build my own things and luckily at some point you had like these actuators emerging in Legos and when I was young even with some uh, programmable uh, Legos and I think that's where it really started to kick off my, my interest in uh, robotics mm-hmm. so I would like to go back what is the first robot you build I think it was one of these uh, Legos, and um, yeah. so the first package that I that I built was one of these Legos with a garbage truck in inside of it. So, uh, and actually, I, I was thinking about, it and I even looked it back up. This uh, Lego garbage truck it has some uh, pneumatic actuators. There are just some piston actuators, and 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 in essence, if you just pump one of these. Uh, pumps down then on the other side there's one of these syringes that is uh, opening up and then you can have like a garbage truck uh, mechanism uh, in there and then I also remember very vividly actually that um, after you build the box uh, then you just deassemble everything and then you start to uh, build uh, your own things um, and I then uh, noted at one point I was very proud because I made um, one mechanical finger with that was actuated actually already then by by pneumatics so i think that was one of my my earliest memories of to building a finger which is maybe like a very uh, coarse robot mm-hmm. great so we will ask some signature question we ask every guest about that what is the most simple and beautiful equation that inspires you <laughs> um, i think oh that's oh that's a hard question i think um just maybe Newton's first equation, like F equals M dot A, because it's just so, uh, so uh, simplistic, right? And still the consequences of that one equation is vast and you can, you can, uh, everything follows that equation within limits, uh, of course, at the very large scale, but also at the very small scale. And with that is like one of the fundamental things. And I think like the, the work that Newton did just to conceive that very first equation, that's just monumental. Great. 
So I'm curious to ask you how you came across Box of Robotics field. You mentioned you have been working in early time about pneumatic finger, but what is the actual start for you in the field of robotics? Mm-hmm. So um, it started all with my master's thesis. Um, I had a good, very good uh, promoter for my master's thesis, and he just said, um, Ben, uh, the, the topic of your master's thesis will be, I want you to make an actuator. Um, that we currently have not in, uh, have in the lab and it needs to be a very small actuator. So in the range of a few millimeters at most. Um, so when I started browsing it through literature uh, and the very first weeks was just, okay, I want to make something very standard. And all of a sudden I came across a, a paper of Professor uh, Satoshi Konishi. And that is a, um, still a professor. Um, in Ritsumeikin University and he made this very small bending actuator and that was in, in uh, 2010 um, and I said okay I just want to try to replicate that actuator um, and back in that time uh, I, I was not being defined as a soft robotics uh, actuator it was just as a balloon actuator that was the, the, the term and um, I think in my master thesis I, I tried to replicate that actuator characterize it more modeled it more and made it I think slightly more robust um, and very interestingly enough, two years, because after my master's thesis, I did a PhD in the same uh, research group. Um, I had the opportunity actually to meet um, Professor uh, Konishi uh, for an internship at his, at Ritsumeikin University. And then, yeah, we made some, some twisting uh, actuators. So, but that was really the first paper that I read. Um, and although at the time it was not being labeled as soft robotics, it was like elastic inflatable actuators, uh, micro actuators. But I think at that point, that's like for me to the start of my entire uh, career on soft robotics research. So that's a good point. I'm curious to ask you, what do you think maybe uh, the accurate definition for soft robotics from your perspective? And what could be uh, the most important question if you're focusing in this definition? Uh, what could be the most important question you have to consider? I, I think it's all um, in the field of soft robotics. Um, I think we we cannot um, forget energy. I think now that that's something that we are regularly uh, forgetting because we take that um, as for granted. We all have a pressure supply or a voltage generator that um, can achieve a tremendous uh, amount of energy for us. Um, and I think if we really want to advance the field of, um, of soft robotics, um, that will be uh, quintessential. How do we get um, high energy, uh, high density uh, energies on board in a soft context um, to make really soft robotics that are uh, untethered? Uh, there, are, there have been like quite some good examples um, of robots that work for instance, a few minutes, a few hours, but the question is, okay, if we want to go beyond that, what, what is needed? Uh, and I think from the materials point of view, there's also some challenges there, but I think the real challenges are in energy and how do you create an, an energy source? Mm-hmm. I think that's really excellent point because I think uh, Professor Rupert Schubert said about energy and that the bottleneck for soft robotics. And you mentioned from two perspectives, I think about smart material, for example, if we have like, any conductive polymer or any smart material that can be stimulated by voltage or, or for example, light. And other side, we have the passive material. So if you tell us uh, from your experience, do you think we have to focus on a smart material in that case? 
or we have to understand how the material behave and fabricate them in a certain geometry or morphology so that we can have the highest energy density? Uh, I, I think both paths, uh, paths are, are very, um, they need to be, be walked, we need to do research on both paths, right? And, and I think the, um, the, the, the path that I'm walking is for certain the, the, the second path is how can we um, optimize um, energy. I, I'm not really interested uh, because that's not my field of expertise in making new materials. Um, I, I think already with the existing materials, we can do a lot of work. So my, um, my, my research area is more focused on given the, the materials that we already have, how can we optimize our, our energy use? And can we find structures that are really um, embodying uh, energy? And I think I, I've spoken with Rob on this topic quite a lot. And I think like the concept of embodiment will be something that will just only start growing uh, within the soft robotics community. And that happens on, on many different levels. And I think um, seeing energy as not something that is outside uh, or a component outside of the robot, but as something that is really integrated uh, with the robot, with the structure, within the actuators, I think that that will be very important. Um, now, the real question is how do we do that, right? Because it's, um, it's, it's very difficult uh, to really decouple everything because from uh, normal conventional robotics uh, point of view we have a battery backpack that powers actuators that powers sensors um, and i think for um, for the soft robotics field it needs to be more embodied in the sense that we have um, an energy source that is embedded within the actuators or within the materials within the linkages and, and in essence what we're then going towards is how can you optimize the energy per weight of the entire robot. That's a very good point. And I'm also curious to ask you if a student may be listening now and maybe ask what could be the most significant parameter in the designing, maybe the structure or something you have to consider so that you can take an account maximizing the energy embedded in the soft robot. That's first one. Well, so, um, and this is only the path that I took, right? Um, or the, 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 the things that I'm interested in is more on seeing what can nonlinearities do for us. Um, I think this is something um, that a lot of people in the software robotics communities are trying to minimize, having um, material nonlinearities or structural uh, nonlinearities. And I'm highly interested in how, are, how can structural uh, nonlinearities be used um, to create better systems, uh, to create system where you can uh, can uh, store energy inside. Um, for instance, and if you look at uh, the plant world, this is something that already happens in plants, right? We all know the the the, the example uh, of the Venus flytrap that is able to store a tremendous amount of energy uh, within. Uh, its curvature and all of a sudden it's been able to snap and release all that stored energy. And I think that's like a very good example of what soft robotics can do or what the philosophy of soft robotics uh, is. Um, and it is, in essence, is just storing energy in geometry, right? It's not storing energy in material nonlinearities, it's storing energy in geometrical nonlinearities. Um, and in that sense, that's like the, the, the pathway that I'm pursuing. And I think there's still a lot of things to explore. So for the, the young listeners out there, I think if you see something that is highly nonlinear, 
try to, instead of avoiding it, try to harness it and see what can you do with these uh, structural nonlinearities. I think that will be my advice. I'm glad you mentioned this point because this point is a really excellent point about uh, nonlinearities, especially for the material, because we, we already have Professor George by side and say that nonlinearities can bring opportunities to soft robots. But I'm curious about geometric nonlinearities, if you can elaborate more about example for that. So, um, so there are two types of, of nonlinearities, um, uh, and, and that are okay. There are multiple types, uh, but for the field of uh, soft robotics, if you, for instance, have an inflatable actuator, um, at some point we all know um, that their motion can be nonlinear. You can have a highly nonlinear bending motion and stuff like that. But really, what I'm saying here is that. Um, their input-output characteristics is um, highly nonlinear in the sense that all of a sudden you have snap-throughs and you can see that for instance at a normal balloon, right? If you want to inflate just a normal party balloon initially, it's very hard to inflate it and all of a sudden you feel there's like a pressure peak and when you go beyond this pressure peak, um, then you can see that it's very easy to start to inflate the, the balloon for the rest. And this pressure peak is just purely on geometry. There is no material nonlinearities um, associated with this initial pressure peak um, because strains are very, very um, small until that point. So this cannot be material nonlinearities. If you then look, if you then inflate um, the balloon even further, all of a sudden it gets to stiffen uh, back up again. Um, so you will, and actually you have like a pressure peak valley profile. Um, and the stiffening, that's a material nonlinearities. But if you look at that, even like you can have highly nonlinear behavior even at small strains. Um, and this is exactly the difference um, between geometrical nonlinearities and material nonlinearities. Normally for um, material nonlinearities, you need to have extremely high strains. Um, and typically these are very hard to model. And also this quite stresses your structure, right? Uh, because we all know that if you, for instance, have um, a balloon that is uh, highly stretched, this is very prone to puncture. Now, if you take balloons or, or structures that are very thick walled, and you don't need to go uh, to these very high strains to still have a very nonlinear input-output relationship, this uh, really uh, makes your life a lot more easy, right? Because you can really use very simple material models. Um, even just a normal neo-hooking material model is more than good enough to capture everything that you need. You don't need to go to very complicated uh, material models. Um, and then the question is, uh, how do you, what are these uh, nonlinear geometry, geometrical uh, things that you can use? And there are quite a, uh, some that are already highly being explored in other fields. For instance, if you look at shell buckling or beam buckling, these are highly nonlinear uh, geometrical effects that happen um, for all materials. Um, so I think that's the, the main difference between uh, geometrical nonlinearities um, or structural nonlinearities and material nonlinearities is just they happen without uh, stretching uh, the material to a high extent. Mm -hmm. That's really excellent point. And I would like to again to ask in this perspective about what could be uh, the useful or non-energies, what could be really beneficial or but we could be detrimental for software? How you can assess the beneficial non-energies? 
Yeah, it's a that's that's the that's the million dollar question right there. How can we how can we access nonlinearities and what can we do with nonlinearities to increase functionality? Um, I think I hope if you would call me again back in uh, in twenty years, I would have the solution. And now um, maybe I can give a, a, a thought about where I think it can go um, because we all know that, for instance, um, nonlinear structures they are uh, regularly being used in. Uh, metamic materials and um, to create, for instance, um, auxetic structures, um, and this is already like a good thing, or uh, that we can, for instance, use in in, in in soft robotics. Now, also there, if you, for instance, have like um, the the example of the the party balloon, right? Um, if you and this is an, uh, something that you can easily do at uh, at your house. Just take two balloons connect them both with a straw and just inflate them with one pressure inlet, right? And what you will see is that one balloon will inflate before the other balloon. And this is, to me, it's so, um, so such a smart uh, system in the sense that you go from one pressure input to a sequenced output, right? Normally, if you just have a conventional uh, uh, inflatable bending actuator, if you would inflate it, um, everything behaves nicely uh, linear in the sense that one would maybe bend a little bit more, uh, more than the other one, but still everything is nicely and continuous, right? But if you inflate these two balloons at the same time, you will see that one balloon will inflate before the other balloon, right? And what you've done now, in essence, is uh, you have created a system with intelligence, right? Because in that, in, in that sense is... Uh, what is an intelligent system? It is something that is able to go from a very low complex input and make it a complex output. And okay, here now the complexity is very, very um, not as, as highly complex, uh, but still you went from one input to actually a sequenced output. And this is now one of the paths that we are trying to explore is how far can we extend this, right? Can we, for instance, uh, go with one input to multiple outputs? And can we really embody intelligence in the hardware of our nonlinearities? Um, and this is then goes back to uh, what people are referring to as embodied intelligence. Um, and that's really, can we, um, and in the long goal there is, uh, can we use also the structure, um, uh, can we use the structure even as a sensor, not only as an actuator, but can we use it um, as a sensor that the uh, outside is able to influence the state of our actuators. Um, and now things get very intricate, right? Because now it's not more that we have a soft robotic system or robotic system that consists of sensors and actuators and power supplies, but in essence, we have a system that behaves, uh, that, that's reacting to a pressure input and to some stimuli from the outside. And the question is, how do you make something functional out of all these, um, these, uh, these, these uh, signals? And I think nonlinearities is quintessential in that point because with nonlinearities, you can go from a very small input to a very small output. And that's only uh, happening when you have nonlinearities. Um, and that's what's needed if you want to, to, to my feeling, make a um, system that exhibit this um, embodied intelligence. Mm -hmm. This is really, really good point. And I think that subject is very uh, critical in the robotic field. And I would like to take you some question here, because in the community, sometimes we see that you have to be wise and to linearize the material. 
And I, I had this experience with Anacon that with Volmer, and sometimes you see the models, it just really doesn't capture the nonlinearities of the material. And you mentioned a very excellent example when you inflate one balloon, it will inflate others. So that's example. Do you agree with the approaches used for linearizing the material, nonlinear material, and neglecting the hysteresis of the material as well? Uh, oh, there's a well, I need to uh, think that I'm not uh, going against some some particular peoples, but I think to to my feeling, um, the one of the most difficult or the most challenging problems that we have in soft robotics is material characterization, um, because what we do or tend to do is. Um, try to do, for instance, a uniaxial uh, uh, stress experiment, and then we can try to fit some uh, material parameters on it. Now, if we then, for instance, plug in these material parameters and we want to uh, fit this in our finite element model or in any uh, other model, for instance, to um, blow up a balloon, we can see that there will be a large mismatch between two, right? So it, the difference between the actual loading state, uh, how you're loading your material in your application and between um, how you are testing your material, they need to be almost exactly. If you're blowing up a balloon, do a biaxial test. If you are, if you're simply having like an extension of a piece of rubber, then probably your uni actual test is good enough. Um, so this is a real problem, right? Because you cannot really go towards uniform material models because if you're, you re really already have to have knowledge about um, the state that you're going to load your material on. And I think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done in uh, material characterization um, and material modeling as how do we bridge this gap between loading states and material models, right? There should be a unified theory because in essence, I only have one material and that material, it doesn't really care how it's being loaded. Um, so now currently, I think this is a, a, a good conclusion that we are, the material models are lacking and they're drastically lacking behind. Um, now, I think the approach that I'm taking is um, I try to make structures that don't go towards large strains because if you have very like strains in the order of like 10% maximum, um, then you um, are really capable of using very simple material models. You don't have stiffening at, at high strain rates, um, but this means that you cannot do anything, everything, sorry. You can, you can do a lot of things, but not everything. In the sense, you cannot really make balloons that are bulging out a lot. You really need to be able to limit your strains um, and have actuators that use your material wisely. The, uh, and there the question becomes, how can I, for instance, make a bending actuator that doesn't stretch as much, but still has a lot of bending deformations? Um, and I think this all comes down to placing your material uh, in selective spots so that, for instance, cross-sectional deformations are limited or using fiber reinforcements. Um, and I think, yeah, it's, it's really um, until we have better material characterization and better material models, I think, yeah, it will always be difficult to really um, report on material parameters because actually they're only limited in your application field. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned this point because I think I think there's really real problems we have. And I would like to stop here again for the modeling part because you mentioned example for testing, for example, uniaxial testing or biaxial testing. And it's still challenging to, to be honest, I, I don't know what you're talking about fitting a model. Do you, do you think fitting a model is sufficient for the moment? Because I think 
there's really not enough physics-based modeling. It's challenging, I know, but, but I, I feel I have the perception that there's, yeah, you say there's a problem here. But if you can tell us why this problem occurred in the first class, where there's no much intention or to dig deeper, understanding the material and take a lot of time to really consider what's a significant parameter. Because I think fitting model is, no, is not sufficient. You, make, you can't circumvent the parameter to match the experiment. And that's what happened in most cases, but I don't know where does this problem come from in the first place, in your opinion. Oh, it's a, it's a very good question. And um, I think to, to, to my feeling is that um, the field of soft robotics is so new that we still need to disentangle this, this problem. And I think it, it comes down to um, like conventional uh, models of rubber, they're not really um, made for having uh, being used in a variety of, of, of applications, right? Um, if you are only, for instance, used, for instance, if you are having very thin um, membranes and you stretch them, then you can use this material model, right? Um, if you, for instance, want to have something uh, that is compressing on all sides, you can better use that material model. But the question is why, right? Because my material is a material. Right, and I don't care how it's loaded, and I should be have one theory that captures everything. Um, so, and until I don't really know actually how to go forward uh, in that problem, I just know that for now, um, I think in a lot of literature, uh, we should focus more on how did we do the material characterization because I think with all this data now, uh, this we're lacking all this data now in, in literature. People are just saying, okay, I use this material model um, and these are the values and that's it. I think, and, and I, that, that's what, something that I would like to see in, in soft robotic literature, is that in every uh, supplemental information, there should be at least one section on material characterization. How did we do it? And also what failed? Because only with this, we can start to bring up the discussion. I, I think now not a lot of people are asking the right questions because we all know we have the same uh, problems but we're not really reporting these problems um, so and I, and I think what I do uh, now for, for all my, my, my testing um, in essence I have uh, three test setups that I can use and, and this depends really on my um, my problem at hand so I have a uniaxial test setup um, and this is if my uh, problem or my application in the end is, has like a uh, uh, 1D uh, dimensionality. Um, then I, I have like a, a spherical uh, setup, uh, setup where I, in essence, make half of a spherical balloon, and I will just inflate it, and I will look at the the pressure volume curve of that shell, and based on that um, uh, setup, I have a, a biaxial test, in, in, in essence, that is able to to give me experiments that I can use, for instance, uh, for everything that has thin membranes. And then we also have um, a setup, for instance, where we can just submerge uh, a ball of a material and just compress the outside liquid and just look how much the um, the, the, the radius is, is decreasing to get something about the bulk uh, models of the material, if that is uh, interested. So for the time being, I think this is the best that we can do. And I just hope that there are some brilliant people out there who are uh, really trying to tackle this problem because this is one of the the most significant problems in, in soft robotics. We don't really know what our robbers are doing. Yeah, I agree with you. 
And I think maybe Susan asking you, what is uh, maybe the reliable uh, modeling approach you use for understanding uh, as much as you can for material use? If you can tell us what's the approach you, you took for modeling the material you have before and maybe recently as well. Yeah, so um, I think for modeling, so if we do all these um, material characterizations uh, with finite elements uh, modeling, we just try to replicate um, the exact uh, material testing that we did, right? So I'm what I'm not doing is I'm just not looking uh, and transforming based on a homogeneous solution, for instance, a uniaxial stress um, in a in a thin uh, beam. That's not what I'm doing. What I'm doing is I'm an abacus. I am simulating my entire uniaxial test back again, have exactly my dog bone structure in there, then try to replicate the boundary conditions as best as I can, really give it like a little bit of a clamping force at the edges and then stretch it. And also these all these boundary conditions, they have a huge effect on your outcome, right? So I think uh, we really need to have uh, systematics in uh, how are we going to test our structure and can we replicate these tests, these tests um, with a model and I use I'm a, a very strong believer in finite element modeling and also there um, they are very useful because you can see that even if you change the boundary condition ever so slightly you would have different material outcomes um, and the, the best thing is with, uh, with these uh, finite element model, models, you can just change them and you can do sensitivity analysis and you can even see uh, to, to, to give a better test, right? Because what you don't want is that your test results are highly dependent on, for instance, your boundary conditions. Um, so in that sense, and maybe that's like a, a good idea to do is to... Um, to do like a sensitivity uh, analysis on boundary conditions on, for instance, uniaxial testing and to see what is the most robust way of clamping a piece of rubber. Um, and, and this I, I hope that uh, people are starting uh, to do and just to, to, to put out some, some papers as with this as, as guidelines to, okay, if you really want to uh, uh, model your rubbers, this is the, the best way to do it. And hopefully this will create some understanding in the yeah, I'm also glad you mentioned the clamping because I think yeah, because I had this experience to work with smart material in a conductive polymer and I found that maybe clamping, the size of clamping, maybe changes the performance. And if you can tell us, maybe for students working in this domain, why clamping is important, the selection of clamping size and, and material. Yeah. So with, with, with clamping, what happens is that you're already processing your material, right? Um, so in essence, you don't start off from the same basis. You're, you're, the structure that you are uh, loading at first, it doesn't, is not in a stress-free configuration. It is already clamped, so and this already brings it to a certain energy level, um, and then you are just uh, imposing forces upon this initial force. Um, and for rubbers, this can be quite substantial. Right, uh, because we all know that rubbers are, they are conceived to be uh, incompressible. So if you just um, give it like a slight uh, pretensioning, uh, just to clamp your rubber, this means that all the material that you're clamping or displacing there, it needs to go somewhere, and this creates already a lot of stresses. Um, so if you would do the same uniaxial testing and you would tighten your screws on your clamp a little bit more, you will have a different uh, response of your material. Yeah. So if I ask you what is an area or direction of research you think is very promising, but maybe the community seems to disagree or doesn't get much attention? 
Yeah, um, I um, I see a lot of people in the yeah. soft robotics community who are um, who are using uh, who are trying to control soft robots, and I, I a lot of my, my close friends are working in in this uh, this field, and I understand it right because they have some amazing. Um, they have some amazing results and they can really start to, to control them accurately. Um, but this comes at some consequences, right? Because we all know that if you want to control a robot, um, you want to have highly uh, nonlinear characteristics. You want to have nonlinear input-output relationships of your uh, actuators. You want to have nonlinear input-output um, uh, relationship for your sensors and then you can combine them together with the control and this is perfect from a robotics point of view now the question that I'm always telling myself is um, do we need it right because everybody knows that okay soft robotics they are compliant compliant so do we really need to have uh, this control if we want to grasp something is that, is that really necessary or is that something that is just a research topic um, and um, I am Fully aware that for some people this um, this answer will be yes we need it absolutely and this is the direction where soft robotics should go to um, and then maybe stubborn as I am uh, I'm saying no let's just try to do everything without control let's see can we make robots without control that would be nice right just a robot doesn't need to have a controller it just lives for instance to a very early life on earth right because if you look at these these bacteria there was not, I don't think there's like really like an input output control. They're just doing something, and then through evolution, they're getting better and better and better. Um, and I'm there. It's been known that some of these organisms don't even have a certain uh, cognitive abilities, right? They don't have a nervous system, so everything needs to come from somewhere else. And that's like the kind of robot that I want to make. Uh, I think that's like a direction. Uh, let's try to not have control. Let's try to make robots without control and see how far can we go there. Um, and this is just an interesting point of view. I'm not saying that everybody should do it, but at least some people should try to do these things just to see can we do something completely different and have some intelligence being uh, that is localized in our system itself. There is no computer there. There's even not a microfluidic chip, but just let's get everything in the nonlinearities and just see how far can we go with that one. And nature told us that you don't have to be intelligent to be hugely, uh, highly successful, right? And that's the thing. Maybe not every robot needs to be intelligent. We can also have very stupid robots that can still be very successful. I think this point is really brilliant, by the way. And I, I want to thank you for this point because, uh, first of all, we ask this question. And I'm, I'm also uh, I'm biased a little bit in your opinion because I think you're right. Maybe I know some people disagree, but sometimes the control even approach destroy the natural dynamic. And that's based on my expertise in smart materials. So destroy the natural dynamics. And that's that's maybe uh, a point to be added here. But I'm curious to ask you, why why do you think the, the other opinion that they won't use the control? What's the point behind using a control of robotic? What's the purpose behind using it in the first class? I think to, to my feeling it's um, because people are so used and the field of conventional robotics has been so successful that people just think let's use everything they have and let's just try to implement it on the field of soft robotics. And that is a very good strategy, right? Because you know that something works, 
why not try to replicate it on a different domain, right? And for a lot of things, this, this, this works. And this is also what you're seeing, for instance, if people want to use machine learning, now machine learning is every, everywhere. And the same thing happens with control, right? And we have a lot of uh, ways to, to control conventional robotics. And now people are trying to use the same frameworks on soft robotics. But the question is, can we really do that? Because the hardware is so vastly different. Is this really a good thing uh, to do or is it something just that is um, from a research point of view the, the way to go um, and really honestly I cannot um, tell you what the answer is there right because I'm also seeing that um, for some application probably you will need control I'm fully aware of that uh, but I'm also seeing that um, without control we can do pretty amazing stuff actually it's um, just um, if you, for instance, look, and that's the, the example again of like the, the Venus flytrap. Okay, it's able to snap and catch flies. And these flies, they are, yeah. if you just look at it, they are more intelligent than the plants, right? Mm. So, and this is like directly a consequence that, okay, even if you don't have intelligence, you can, you can outsmart some intelligent people, uh, some intelligent organisms. Um, so, yeah, and so I think that's also why I'm not really interested in um, in having control schemes for my actuator or for my robots. Um, let's just try to do it without control or with the least amount of, of control and just see how far can we get there. And then also, I would love to see these two domains merge together because probably we cannot go completely without control, right? There should be like a gray zone in the middle like you also have a gray zone between hard robots and soft robots there should also be a gray zone between let's call it software intelligence and hardware intelligence where actually the the, the terminology is flipped upside down um and i just see where there where we can just meet again um each, each other again but yeah i think i will tackle it from the the, the hardware intelligence point of view and it just yeah it's good that we we have people working on the software intelligence of of soft robots, uh, but I'm working on the, the hardware intelligence of soft robots. Yeah, I think that's, uh, again, that's a very good point because I think we had the first uh, soft robotics debate since uh, two months ago about uh, control scheme vs morphology computation and what could be the most important morphological parameter that could enhance the control design or we have to look for completely new approaches. And now you suggested something I think uh, very interesting and we have to look for, but I think, I think maybe, I don't know if you agree about that, I think you think differently because if every, uh, of course, uh, how to say that? I think there is bias in techniques. You have to do that because this is really uh, publishable as well and have been done, so you have to replicate. And I think if I, you come across that someone think differently and you don't want to go with the flow. I think that's the issue. I don't know if you agree with that because I think sometimes there's maybe some researchers afraid to take a risk to propose completely new ideas out of stream. And I don't know if you think this is a problem for, for yeah, your, this yeah, question. Yeah, it certainly is, right? Because it's hard to, to publish um, very wild LDs because people are always, people then tend to, this is just garbage. This is not good because it's yeah. so, so beyond our comfort zone. Um, and, and I think that's, that's also um, like, I what happened to me on the, the first uh, soft robotic conferences is in the sense that I, I went there with just some regular balloons that I showed you can go from one input to multiple outputs. And actually, there was not a lot of uh, enthusiasm 
right? I, I think I didn't even score a, um, uh, a presentation with that picture, and I thought it was really interesting. And now, okay, I, I'm just like, maybe that's like too stubborn for me. And I really thought that, okay, this is, this is interesting. And then all of a sudden, you can see that you can have some people who are believing in you and really want to collaborate, uh, collaborate yeah. on these things. And then you can see that even you can go to journals that are very fundamental journals just because you are, are really having an edge on other people. Because you're not really just making another controller. No, you're really tackling fundamentals of robotics. Um, so um, and in that sense, it's, it's pretty great. And I, I accept skepticism. Right, because that's what's needed. That's why we are good scientists, and we need to prove ourselves that our technology is worthwhile. Um, so, and I think I, I hope I'm, and I'm, I'm uh, enjoying that, that people are now really into the getting to know the the nonlinear field and really want to go beyond traditional control and software bodies, but really are also looking um, towards these nonlinearities and also there. There have been a lot of interesting papers there who use, for instance, origami uh, to create nonlinearities. And there are some research groups out there who are really doing tremendous work in these uh, yeah, nonlinearities uh, combined with soft robotics. I think that's really a tricky point and at the same time it's very important. What you mentioned about first soft robotics uh, conference, I was there at the time. But uh, you, I think you are right because sometimes if you have a completely new idea, wild idea, people will be skeptical and sometimes they don't grab the idea behind what you're doing. And I think that's a tricky point because I I had discussion with Professor Maljan and she said that she had also a new idea and wasn't able to convince the community in human-computer interaction until she became a tenured professor. And that was for young researchers sometimes challenging if you have a new idea that you propose something completely different. I don't know for you, because I, I think you may, maybe if you have suggestion for that, how we can ensure if a young researcher have a completely new idea and at first to be investigating and listening and, and pay attention for it, because I think it's still in the community we go on the stream of traditional control and still there are a lot of researchers using uh, this approach. So I'm glad yeah. you mentioned that. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to, to, to give concrete uh, advice because to my feeling, it's always good to have a certain level of stubbornness, right? If you think by yourself, okay, this is a good idea, just go for it, right? Um, maybe don't do this only, but just every uh, Friday afternoon, just uh, only do this research and leave your own research just, just to be, and just see how, how well can you uh, advance it. And then find like-minded persons. I think that that's really important. And there are very crazy scientists out there um, who really are always looking forward to do very innovative things and who really can see beyond uh, boundaries of, of domains. And I think that, that's very important just to reach out to these people with your ideas. Um, and I think that's something that we should all learn in the scientific community is that now we are very scared to discuss initial ideas with each other because we're always afraid that we are being scooped and that, our, that somebody else will steal our ideas and make a paper out of it or make a career out of it. And I think that's completely wrong because we are always thinking in the sense of us against somebody else. And in fact, it's more us against the unknown things in the world. And we all want to just uh, create more knowledge and to create more knowledge, we need to cooperate more. So I think if you have these crazy ideas, just yeah. shoot uh, emails to people and just ask them, hey, I have this crazy idea. Would you like to collaborate with me on, on this and just see where, where it goes from that point? 
the world and your life is way too short to just uh, start to do it on your island. Just try to get people with other expertises involved and really try to to, to push it in, in, in that way. And even if your PI is maybe not interested, that can be because maybe it's just outside of his scope. Okay, then um, it's your point also just to try to convince him and see, hey, I talked to it with this and this and this guy, and they are really interested and we can think we can make something work. And if in the end it gets to a journal paper or a conference paper, he will like it right but also there don't be too stubborn if at some point you can see okay this is maybe only me who can see it in there i've touched it with uh, with a lot of other people and really this is just not going somewhere just try to uh, see for a different path but still the knowledge gained is also very valuable yeah i think that's also excellent point again because i think that also we discussed in the podcast about uh the competition and you mentioned something that you are afraid to be scooped. And let's be realistic in that case because we know there's a competition between groups. And sometimes, yeah, what you said, is, I'm a big advocate for that, but what happened in reality, there's just a few competition between some groups. I, uh, in in, in sort of robotics and robotics and other academic uh, world as well, they have the competition because there's few funds, few grants, and you have to publish. So it's, I think it's a very complicated issue. I, I, I don't know if you agree about that. But yeah, I think it that's, is. That's it is. I think we all know this feeling, or if maybe for the, the, the young research out there, uh, I hope that it doesn't uh, happen to you, but it all happens to, to people who are in a more senior in the sense that you're working for a project for months, maybe even years, and all of a sudden this paper is being published that does exactly what you do, right? And this is the most devastating feeling uh, in the world. And yeah, okay, two conclusions from that thing. First, your idea is good, you had a good idea, so you're on the right track. So if somebody else publishing your thing, okay, too bad, but at least you're looking and you're trying to answer the right questions, right? So yeah. that, that's already a very good uh, thing. And now secondly, okay, how do you cope with that, right? Because um, you don't, nobody wants to be scooped. Um, but I, I'm, I'm a very avid believer that um, although there's a, a high uh, competitiveness in science, um, people are also very willing to collaborate uh, with each other. And I think that's very, now it's a very rough time to really start up new collaborations, but that's why conferences are so important and just that you really start to, to, to network with people. Um, and I think at that point, it really should be more on what are the grand projects that we can uh, tackle together. And I hope that people are not as selfish to steal other people's ID, but at least just start and set up more collaborations. And in the end, who cares if there's like one or two more authors on your paper? At least you have the paper out. Yeah. So maybe we can ask some question here. Uh, as you mentioned about dramatic nonlinearities, if there's an inspiring living creature, maybe you think about for the moment you want to maybe bio-inspire, take the behavior by inspiration in nature. Do you have any kind of inspiration for that? Yeah, you have this, uh, like one of the goals is this creature, I don't know the, the, the scientific name of it, but in essence, it's like a, it's, it's like a, I think it's a single cellular organism and it only has two states. It only, it can only walk forward and if it then bumps into a wall, it goes backwards. And it, instead of going backwards along a straight line, it goes backwards along a circle, right? And then after a certain while, it goes forward again. 
And this is a very, very, very simple organism because it only has two states going forward in a straight line or going backwards along a curve. But with this very simple uh, logic, it can explore the entire world. Uh, and I think that is an, 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 an essence, an, an organism that is not intelligent, but is very, um, very successful at what it does. It, its only thing is to cover as, as large space and just try to feed off whatever it, it encounters. But it does that with such a, an unimaginable simplicity that is so robust. Um, and I think that's something, for instance, that it's like a robot that I want to make um, or that we already uh, are in the process of, of making. Um, because it's so simple, it doesn't need any logic. And I think we can do it just uh, with um, hardware control in the sense that no software control is involved there. So I think this is one of my favorite creatures out there because it's so stupid and still it's so beautiful at the same time. Yeah, that's inspiring, yeah. And if I ask you what are the most misconceptions about of robotics, maybe if in, in academic uh, colleagues and maybe from lay people outside the field, if you have scientific discussion with them. Yeah, I think that the general misconception is that you can only use soft robots if it's in close collaboration with humans. I think that's, that's why like the main motivation of soft robotics, oh, we want to have a, a soft robot that, for instance, we want to have a robot that can, uh, for instance, assist people in day-to-day -day tasks, or uh, we want to have a robot that has that works for rehabilitation purposes or for minimal invasive surgery. And sure, this is a sector where we really should be, be working on, but also beyond that, right? Why should we only be limited to applications that involves something that is as soft as a soft robot? Why can't we look at other applications um, just in the general robotics field? Maybe we can find stuff there uh, that soft robots are better at doing these things as conventional robots. And I think the main uh, where the soft robots will really thrive is on the small scale. Because on the small scales, um, you need to have um, the same constraints as you have with uh, regular uh, robotics. Everything is so expensive to downscale, you really need to go to very um, easy structures uh, to create very functional things. Um, so I think small scale soft robotics, that's also like the next frontier uh, where we are going to embark in. Um, but yeah, as I told you, why only limit to applications that are in relationship with human or with biological tissue? Maybe we can find robots that are high performing conventional robots just by making them soft. Yeah, that's a good point. So in that perspective, what could be the biggest technological roadblocks that could face maybe miniaturized soft robotics in short and longer term? Yeah, I think uh, that's a very good point. Uh, like miniaturizing uh, soft robots or like nonlinear systems, because at that point when you go really small, is the robot, is it a, an intelligent system, right? It's, it's, it's very on the verge of, of what it really is. But I think downscaling things is, will be something very tricky. Um, because uh, manufacturing technologies uh, to create things at very uh, small scales, they are available, but only for very simple geometries. Planner things, maybe things with a two and a half D geometry. This is like readily available now, but if you really want to go through 3D um, shapes, that's really, really hard um, at, at small scales. Um, and especially because I think like the, the main vision that I have there is that you need to have like a separation of length scales. You need to have structures that are 
at a micrometer scale and you need to combine all these structures into something that is like a millimeter or a centimeter scale. But the question is how do you break this leg scale uh, production wise, right? Do you print everything at the micrometer scale or is it more you make something at a micrometer scale and assembly it into the millimeter scale and how does that assembly work? Um, I think there are like real tough challenges if you really want to downscale intelligence systems. Um, because it's a, it's a separation of length scales that, that needs to happen. And this is always uh, difficult um, for any production technique. It's very hard to make something that is uh, has millimeter size features, but also is a meter big, right? This is very hard. Uh, and this is what needs to be done at a micro scale, making stuff with micrometer features and having a millimeter length scale. Um, so this is a, it's a very challenging problem for soft robotics. Yeah. I'm curious to ask you where's the any direction you thought would work out very well, but empirical result proved something could be interesting for you, or you didn't expect it when you have the model, but in experiment work you found something maybe surprising for you. Yeah, I, th I think we uh, just recently we published this year a paper where we made a balloon that can jump. Uh, in essence, and it uh, it took us quite a while to get to that paper because in essence, uh, and that we something that we didn't know. Um, in the beginning, we were making uh, a balloon with a characteristic that nobody has seen ever before. Um, and all of a sudden, we are not governed even by pressure volume, uh, pressure uh, peak and valley profiles, but we can have very intricate shapes in, in, in terms of pressure and volume. Um, and this completely expanded everything and it all started towards a numerical simulation that was not converging anymore. Um, I was just uh, trying to uh, inflate a spherical shell and all of a sudden I saw that every technique that I had in my toolbox was just not converging anymore. Um, and I thought instead of, okay, let's just try something else, just let's, let's go for a different project. I think my, my reaction was then, okay, because it's not converging, this is really interesting, right? Because if something converges in finite elements, you know more or less how it's going to behave. If things stop, converging you know that things are highly highly nonlinear um, so that was like the very surprising thing um, and just by exploring why it was not converging anymore we find that we can make um, balloons jump mm -hmm. great that's a good example sir so we're closing to the end we have a few questions the first one how to ensure that the developed soft robotics in your lab will be beneficial to the community or humanity as a whole. And you have a grant for four or five years because we know sometimes you have a project and you don't know where we have to go on this journey. Sometimes it's a challenging. So how you can ensure what you develop is really beneficial. Yeah, yeah, good question, good question. Um, I, I think for academia um, now we are, yeah, it's, it's at, a, at a point where everything that we do needs to have some sort of economic finality. I think this is just uh, what people are expecting. This is how you get uh, projects being sold, how you get money for a project. There always needs to be um, an economic finality. The problem with soft robotics is that we are, I, I think besides like a few warehouse grippers, everything is very far ahead of us. And the question is, how do you sell that? So I think we need to go with intermediate goals and just show with intermediate goals. Um, this is something that can already be beneficial. Um, and I think there we need to like, uh, again, we cannot really go beyond applications uh, that are outside of the, the, that are in relation with, with humans or with cells or with organisms. 
um, because this is something where people outside of our community see the direct value. Um, so I think that's also and 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 grand applications there. Uh, yeah, there's like a section always like the applications, and I think I also always now uh, try to tailor it towards applications that are in contact with organisms um, to pick them up to do something with them um, or like in, in the terms of uh, the jumping robot that that i uh, made it's actually it's a good mechanism to, to create inertial forces um, and how do you create soft inertial forces and you can have now tapping sounds or you just like a, a tapping um, thing that is just creating some some feedback on your body so I think this this is all, uh, yeah, it, it's hard in the field of soft robotics because we're not nearly there to having like the big applications. But yeah, we need to try to sell it, right? That's right, yeah. And do you think ego is important for the researcher? <laughs> uh, I um, would like to say no, but I think the reality is yes, because we all think that our research is the most important research. And even now, I already said that people who are doing control are not what I like to do. So I think that's my ego already uh, speaking up. But I think it also comes at um, everybody here had a struggle, right? We all know um, we are getting scooped on a regular basis. We have pro uh, proposals that are being rejected on a, on a regular basis. Um, and the only way, uh, if we have then some points, at some point a success story, we have a good paper, we have a good grant uh, application, this is something that we say, okay, this is what I did. So I think you cannot go really beyond uh, egos and everybody is, um, yeah, uh, it's just like, this is the game that we play. Uh, I think great researchers, they regularly tend to have uh, great egos and for good consequences because I think if these great researchers didn't have great egos maybe there would not be quite a substantial amount of students um, that are just helping them uh, to, to fulfill their their their, their the big challenges mm -hmm. yeah I really like the fact you think differently and I'm curious to ask you if there's any book inspired you in your, your life um, I, I think, um, and this is really, um, uh, I'm not a, a, an avid reader in the sense that I, I like uh, to read certain books, but I'm a, a very, um, I like to watch movies a lot. And I think in, in that sense, um, I think uh, Big Hero 6 was a great influence uh, because you can see directly what a vision can, can mean. And it was... Uh, in that sense, to me, uh, it's a very good tool to explain soft robotics to the general population, right? What is a soft robot? Where can we use it? Um, and that's all uh, thanks to that movie because it just embodied directly from the start what can a soft robot be, right? Why is it important? It is soft um, and it isn't, for instance, inflatable, right? I, I think that movie, to me, is, 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 is something of... Um, uh, yeah, that was really quintessential in just trying to explain what soft robots is. Um, and I think now you also look at the, the new uh, Spider-Man uh, movie, uh, the, the cartoon where you also see that I think Dr. Octopus also has his soft robotic um, arms now. I think I hope to see more of these um, soft robotic villains or soft robotic technology emerging in, in, in mainstream cinema. So if I can tell us what could be the best uh, 
um, maybe quality you have gained while being in Acadia, or something you have to maintain in your life? I think it's a, just a sense of surprise. Um, because I'm always, if, if uh, me or my, my, uh, my PhD students that I'm supervising, if they come up to me and say, hey, um, I made this, this is a robot and it's, it's walking, it's, it's, it's moving, it does something, it's swimming. And um, still at that point when I see this robot, robot, I'm always surprised about how beautiful it works and how natural it, it looks. And I hope that I will have that general uh, feel of surprise whenever I see a soft robot in, in action. Yeah. And what was the advice was given to you was it personally or professionally? And was the life changing for you? <laughs> I think uh, I had a lot of advices. I think a lot of people said to me, Ben, don't do a PhD, don't do a postdoc. <laughs> I think this was very shaping for me. And I just went um, completely against uh, the, the stream. Um, and that's just because I uh, really was captured by the field of soft robotics. Um, I think I did my master thesis student, uh, my master thesis uh, work in it. Um, and at the end, I was talking to people and say, hey, why don't you just go towards a company and do the easy stuff? And I just said, no, I just like research so much. Um, and I, I don't think it's finished. And even now, I, I don't think my research in soft robotics is nearly finished. There are still, um, the more I do research, the more I know that we don't know anything yet. So there's still a lot of things to research. Yeah. So I think that was the, the major advice. Yeah. Yeah. And do you have any final words of robotics community you would like to say? Um, yeah. So, um, as I said, we are making like very nice uh, actuators that are very nonlinear. And I hope that these nonlinear actuators are really now a, a new tool um, in the toolbox of um, of, uh, soft robotic, uh, of the soft robotic community. And also there, I think we will, in the near future, we'll, we'll be releasing some uh, computational tools that people can really use to, to design inflatable soft actuators. Um, so I'm, that's like a little bit of a scoop there. I'm not going to, to say a, a lot about it because we still are, are highly developing this, this tool, but I think it will be uh, something of, of great value to the soft robotics uh, community. Thanks so much, Benjamin, for your time. It was really enjoyable discussion. Thank you.